you get to live your dream life as you create your dream life. And I think so many of us are so caught up on getting there. Well, like, well once I get there, everything's going to be great and perfect. And let me tell you, there is no different than here. Once you get there, like once you get that business, then you're going to have tens of other things you have to resolve. Once you get that partner, there are going to be tens of other issues you guys need to work through. Once you move into that home, there's going to be tens of other things you need to be responsible for. So we get to bring that joy, that ease, that dreamlike quality in our present day as well. And so there's like lots of things. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about, but I think the biggest thing for me is how, how am I doing this? How am I being and who, who am I in this process? Right. And those words really, really guide me. What happens in between is all about the awkward middle phase of creation. You know, after you've taken your first steps, but before you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor, Join me, Athena, as I learn from artists, creators, and entrepreneurs about the tactical and emotional methods they use after the initial excitement of following your dreams meets the reality of following your dreams. Okay, hi everybody! Get ready for the energy of this episode. It's going to be a stunner. We have B. Sharon Eskandani, who is a teacher, facilitator, and guide who specializes in Mm, just the tastiest of M's, mindfulness, mindset, and manifestation. You've seen her on the Today Show. You've seen her in the New York Times, in Shape, in Cosmo. Whew. And because that's not even enough, guys, she has performed at Carnegie Hall and the Metropolitan Opera as an award-winning opera singer. Sharon, how dare you? <laughs> Oh my gosh, thank you. That's like the most, the way you read my bio, I was like, wow, that's an impressive human being. That's pretty incredible. So thank you for that. I'm so thrilled to be here. So thrilled to be having this conversation with you. Yay. I'm so excited to have you here as well. And on the eve of a full moon. No, I know. Mm -mm -mm. This is going to be a great one. <laughs> so I would love to just start with you know, the obvious question, how did you transition from opera singing to space holding healer extraordinaire? Well, it's a great question. It's a question that requires a lengthy answer. So as you said, so I was a professional opera singer for like 10 plus years and growing up, that was what I wanted to do. Just singing was where I found my joy on the stage was where I felt most free and most myself. And so I was very fortunate to grow up in a family where that was really encouraged for me to pursue that. And I just threw myself into music, into singing. And, you know, I was very talented at singing, but also I was your classic immigrant marginalized kid. And so I was like, people pleaser, perfectionist, hardworking, like, you know, so the combination of my skill, my gift, and just all of these kind of coping mechanisms that I created just as being this like weird immigrant kid allowed me to really get quite far as a singer. And so I grew up in Canada. My family immigrated there from Iran when I was really young. And in this town in Canada that I was raised in, I was like, kind of a big fish in a little pond. And I didn't realize it then, but my whole identity at that point was around being the best. Like that was it, right? And 
the only ways I knew how to do things were through those kind of the lens of how can I be better? How can I be more perfect? How can I like appease this person or make that person happy? And so I was very lucky I got into a master's degree in New York City and I moved to New York where I now live. And I moved here and all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, everyone is amazing at what they do. Everyone is really hardworking. And my identity just started to crumble around me because I was no longer the best. I was no longer different because, you know, everyone was kind of hustling and grinding and doing their thing. And so I got to New York and I was really, really struggling. And instead of kind of looking inward, which was really what was going on, I kind of doubled down on the perfectionism and the people pleasing and the hard overachieving working. And that got me really, really far. So I was working soon after I graduated full-time as a professional opera singer, which is like, it's statistically pretty not common. So it was like very amazing. And I started working all over the world and in Europe and Carnegie Hall, but I was completely miserable. I was really burnt out and I was navigating my way through this quote unquote dream life, really through this lens of like proving and doing and striving. And all I could focus on was, you know, what I wasn't doing well and the jobs I wasn't getting And it was really, really difficult. And I had almost gotten to this point where I was like, I don't really know if I want to do this anymore. I had started to really resent singing. I had started to just really resent the life I had created for myself, which was the life that I had really wanted forever. And that's when I had my huge aha moment. So my agent at the time called me and said, Sharin, the Metropolitan Opera wants you to sing in Carmen next season, which for people who don't know, the Metropolitan Opera is like, you know, the pinnacle of where an opera singer wants to be singing. Like it's like the Olympics of singing, right? Mm -hmm. And this was my dream opera house, dream opera and dream role. Like this was exactly what I dreamed about. And I remembered like when I was a kid, I thought if you ever get this job, you know, when you get this job, you're going to feel so happy and it's going to be like excitement and joyful and all these really great feelings. And then As a young woman who was really struggling in New York, I always said to myself, if you ever get this job, you'll know you're good enough. You know, you made it, you're good enough. And I remember going to sign the contract and I realized I felt none of those feelings. All I felt was self-doubt and insecurity. I didn't feel any different. And all I could think was, you're not good enough for this. Like you're just not enough. And that's when I really realized that nothing outside of me was ever going to make me feel the way I wanted to feel. And that responsibility was really on me, what was going on internally. And so I had a year and a half to prepare for this role at the Opera House. And so during that time, of course, I worked on my voice, but I also worked on like my spiritual and emotional and mental health. And that really changed my life. And I started working with the coach as part of that. I loved coaching and it got me to a point where I say today that my biggest accomplishment in life isn't singing at the Met, but it's singing at the Met and enjoying every part of that process. Even when I messed up, even when things went left, I had worked on myself so much. I had this toolkit of resilience and self-care and self-love that I could just be in the present. I could be in the joy of the moment. And so that experience was incredible, but it also brought me to this real realization that I wanted to be a coach and 
as much as I loved singing, I didn't really love the lifestyle of being a singer. And so I went to get certified and then, you know, five years later, here we are. And yeah, so that's kind of in a nutshell, Mm -hmm. a shorter version, kind of, it's a long, short version of how I got here. Yeah. Look, we love a lengthy tale. We got time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. There was so much really fruitful little seeds in there. The one that I'm really want to get through first is when you mentioned basically that doubling down and listen, I used to be the purveyor of doubling down. I would notice that I made a mistake and I'd go, all right, too bad. We're going in. (laughs) But you mentioned that doubling down into perfection and proving really got you very far. And I think that that is what is such a mind fuck, (laughs) basically, is that society is rewarding us often for these behaviors that tear at our insides. And so I'm very interested in basically a huge part of healing is like, you don't realize that something isn't working until it breaks. Yeah. So how have you since then been able to be a bit more proactive about things in terms of, okay, this system of moving or how I was doing this won't last forever or is like starting to become uh, hostile internally. So how have you, since that moment when you like realized, oh, I'm about to sign this contract and I still don't feel great. (laughs) How have you since then really worked on like, how can I proactively create systems basically that keep me whole and healing? Yeah. So I think for me, the big realization was, I think in our society and particularly for those of us in certain communities or families, our focus is very much on like, what am I doing? What do I need to achieve? It's like, what, what, what? Mm -hmm. And we think that when we get the what, we're going to find the feeling that we desire, right? So like, when I get that degree, when I get that partner, when I get that house, when I write, then I'll feel happy, I'll feel fulfilled, I'll feel successful. And that whole experience to me taught me that it's not the what that's really the important thing. It's not what we're really desiring. It's, it's how am I doing this? Like, how am I going about going after these things? And that's key. And, you know, now this is the work I did with myself, but now I also work with other people who have these incredible what's they want to achieve. And I want all of us to achieve those biggest dreams. But if we're not achieving our dreams with like really mindful intention, then we can burn out on our dreams and we can end up presenting our dreams. And that's when we give up on our dreams. And then we think the problem is us. But the issue is that we've never been taught a how that is sustainable, a how where there's joy and there's ease, a how where we can thrive alongside the thing that we're trying to create. So for me, there's a lot of things that I use, but it's all about how is my internal landscape. So, you know, for instance, with my work now, I have a lot of really big goals and achievements, but I know, like, for instance, I know when I'm falling into the old ways of being, when I'm thinking about like what I need to do all the time, there's an anxiousness, there's an urgency to everything. And so when I'm not going for walks or when I'm not finishing, when I'm saying I'm going to finish, right? So I have these kind of what I call symptoms. Like these are my symptoms of Mm -hmm. when I'm falling out of my self-care, my self-centeredness. I like to call it self-centeredness because 
for me, it's a reclamation of that word that I should be the center of my world. Right. And so like having a morning routine is really important that like grounds me and it sets the day for me having time in the day to rest, whether that's a nap, it's a walk, even like for me, even just watching some trashy TV in the middle of the day Mm -hmm. is just like joy to me. But, you know, I say this phrase often to clients and it's like the catchphrase of my podcast, but you get to live your dream life as you create your dream life. And I think so many of us are so caught up on getting there. Well, once I get there, everything's going to be great and perfect. And let me tell you, there is no different than here. Once you get there, like once you get that business, then you're going to have tens of other things you have to resolve. Once you get that partner, there are going to be tens of other issues you guys need to work through. Once you move into that home, there's going to be tens of other things you need to be responsible for. So we get to bring that joy, that ease, that dreamlike quality in our present day as well. And so there's like lots of things. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about, but I think Mm -hmm. the biggest thing for me is how, how am I doing this? How am I being and who, who am I in this process? Right. And those words really, really guide me. Yeah, that's beautiful. The second thing that you mentioned was that nothing outside of yourself holds the responsibility of your emotional well-being, And I think that's a very beautiful sentiment. And I also see kind of a contradictory point around community. (laughs) And this has been a little bit of the central thesis for this season for me is just kind of how do we, and especially as women of color who are primarily taught, well, certainly Black women, are taught that we are to be self-sufficient and not only self-sufficient, but like self-sufficient and taking care of everyone else's stuff. So how dare you ask for help? Yick. So how do we interact with this space? I don't even think it's an opposition, but how do you interact with this space of leaning on community, but still being your own sovereign? So community is such a key in healing and growth and It's a key part and pillar of the work I do as a coach, because when I started coaching, you know, I loved one-on-one coaching, but when I started group coaching, I was like, oh, this is really different. The transformations are sometimes quicker. They're more fluid. There is this magic to doing this work in community, Mm -hmm. but the key is like a community that really sees you and hears you and understands you. Right. And so those two parts of like being a sovereign. So for me in my healing journey, Once I started to reclaim who I was and reclaim what I wanted in life and how I wanted my life to be, I started to see that a lot of my communities actually weren't serving me. And I could not have seen that unless I had gotten to a place where I was healthier and I had that because I just wanted what's in my life. I just want a friend. I just want a boyfriend. I just want a house. I just want a job. But when I started to really do the inner work, I wasn't like, oh, I just don't want any friends. I want friends who can really meet me where I'm at and also push me beyond. I want friends that I can like talk about these really grand and big ideas to and not feel like I have to censor myself. I want friends who, if I come one day wearing one thing and the next day, another thing, like they're just like, yeah, you do whatever you want to do. And so that process for me, and I think this is something in self-growth and healing we don't talk about enough. One of the most difficult things is often realizing you're going on this journey of growth and healing by yourself. And a lot of the times the people in our lives that kind of got us to a certain benchmark or mile marker aren't the ones who are going to be able to get us to that next one. 
And that's okay, right? One of the things I see, and I did this too, when I was like growing and healing, I was like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. I was trying to like push it on everyone in my life. And that's not what we do, (laughs) even though you want to do it. People have to come to it when they want to, if they want to. And so, yeah, community is a huge part of it. But like, I don't think you can find the community that really serves you until you are really like centered in who you are and what you want and what you want your relationships to be about. That makes it so, so different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lovely. So how did you come to that business model of the communal healing? What prompted you to go into group coaching? And even now with the Alchemy Collective, I'm not going to give away your goodies, but like the particular way that you have shaped that program and the way that it goes, how did you evolve into that business model? So when I was doing one-on-one coaching, even though the people... I was working with were really different. They were really different in their backgrounds and their life experience and what they were doing in the present. There were so many common themes and threads that were coming up expressed in different ways, but very similar. And I think one of the things, unfortunately, it's the human experience. We do this. It's like, we think we're the only ones who are having to deal with this or feel this way or have done something this idiotic or stupid, right? And What I love about group coaching is that when you start sharing your stories, that's when you realize that you're not alone. You're not the only one. No one's perfect. No one has it all together. When you're on a call or in person and you see someone who you're like, oh, this person obviously must have it so together. And then they share a story about how they feel like they're a mess. That sense of connectedness really gives us so much support and power and strength And makes us feel like we're not the weirdo. And if I am a weirdo, then like I'm in a group full of amazing weirdos. So let me be a weirdo, like, you know? So I do still do a little bit of one-on-one coaching because I think that private one-on-one time is really important, but I kind of have like a hybrid program now too, where it's like group coaching and one-on-one coaching, which is called Wholehearted Woman. But in the Alchemy Collective, that's all group coaching. And I love it because the conversations we get to have there also like in my group programs and if you find a community for yourself that feels this good, people share things that even their partners don't know, their sisters have never heard, their best friend hasn't heard, not because they don't trust those people, but because the situation hasn't come up for them to share it, or the question has never been asked of them, or they just never had that insight and felt like there was the time or the space to say it. And so to be able to have a space in which no one knows your past, no one knows who you are and what you're supposed to be about. It's really, really powerful. Yeah. What are the components of safety in a community? So for me, safety is a really, really important part of creating a community. But I've also come to understand that I can do things within my communities that will allow for safety, but I can never say that my space is safe that is for my community to tell me, right? So, you know, a lot of coaches are like, this is a safe space. And I'm like, no, I don't get to tell you this is a safe space. I can create expectations and guidelines and boundaries and people to go to and shared language, but I can't say this is safe. You all can reflect that back to me if it should feel that way or if it is that way. And I think that's one of the big keys is not me presuming that just because I've done a couple trainings and I've put up a couple guidelines that it's safe. 
but for me, a really big part of safety is I have always like community guidelines and shared language, but that also if something does happen that doesn't feel good to you, who are the people that you can reach out to? I found myself when I was in the wellness world, the beginning in really harmful places, really toxic places, you know, wellness, hashtag wellness is so white, it's mm -hmm. changing, but I found myself in spaces that were again, branded as a safe space. And that's when you kind of, for me is always a hint now. I'm like, oh, if they say it's a safe space, then it's probably not a safe space. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, you know, when someone's like, I'm not a racist. And you're like, mm, there's a butt coming up, isn't there? <laughs> right. What the next clause is. <laughs> you know, so like, but I just found myself in these spaces where there were a lot of really great things being presented. Like some of the information was so healing, was so amazing, but then also their harm was caused. And so one of my big things as a coach is about really honoring that space for the people who come into it. Like really, I never take it for granted when someone comes to work with me. So I'm just like, thank you. I'm so grateful you are here. And it's really about how can I make this space work for all of y'all? So creating a safe space is, I think it's a dance. You create it with the people that are in that container. Absolutely. Mm -mm. wellness and whiteness not synonymous people <laughs> <laughs> no 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 you mentioned earlier being Iranian yes so we both come from immigrant families and I'm very very interested in your experience as you moved into what we are calling collectively sort of like spirituality but the quote unquote, fluffier things, your manifestation, your mindset work. What was your family's reaction to that shift? And has it been difficult <laughs> to explain what you do to them? <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. So I'm very lucky. My family is very, very supportive of whatever I do. I still don't think they know what I do exactly, which honestly, I just feel like most parents are like, I don't know what my kid does, but seems like they can pay their bills. Seems like they're okay. They can come visit me once in a while. So we're good. Yeah. But what I will say around that is for me now doing this work and, you know, I coach, I do a little bit of the woo stuff, but it's also been a reclamation because things like manifestation, things like modalities that are about internal healing, whether it's breath work or meditation or Reiki or all these other things, they're, they originate from, you know, BIPOC cultures. They originate from the cultures of the global majority, right? So that is also like this beautiful reclamation happening right now in which we see a lot more practitioners that are brown and black and they are Asian and they are South Asian. They're from all over the world. And like, I remember seven years ago, I tried to do a retreat and I'm like, I want a South Asian yoga teacher. I could not find one easily because I was just like going through all these lists of like these white women. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like what is going on? And so this is also a reclamation that this work is for us and it is meant to be taught by us. So that is also something that I've been really realizing too, that like, I'm like, okay, I'm talking about manifestation, but like our people have been manifesting from day one. So mm -hmm. this is just me coming back to my roots. Yeah, I feel that very much. I have been reflecting a lot lately on the large scale severance or severing that colonialism and imperialism 
did and continues to do where, for instance, there are a lot of Black people in America right now specifically who are trying to interact more with ancestral work or African traditional religions, but because there's so much deeply rooted white supremacist patriarchal Christianity, not just Christianity on its own, but the specific brand that is white supremacist and patriarchal, because there's so much of that instilled into older Black Americans. They're looking at these things that are a piece of us that are inherent to who we are as evil, because that's what we were taught and conditioned. Like that's how they kept us severed, amputated, basically, from where we actually came from. And it's been very interesting listening to people of color speak on the reclamation of these practices and there are so many people I know, myself included, who practices such as manifestation or practices like yoga. Still, I'm still like, I don't really want to mess with yoga, even though I know, I know its origins. I know guys, don't worry. You don't have to like blow up my DMs about this. I get it. <laughs> but because of for years, all I was seeing was a very specific brand of yoga that was hyper-capitalist. I'm still like, it's still kind of icky to me. So it's been very interesting in the past, like two, three years, seeing all of these Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer people, like really stepping back into these and going, no, this is not only for us, it was created by us. You don't get to co-opt this anymore. So it's a very beautiful time we're going through. No, I 100% agree. And I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started teaching manifestation because I felt the same way about manifestation in that I saw all these white, very privileged, cisgendered, able-bodied women talking about it. And it sounded great, but it just didn't sound like it was for me because of my background, because of like my lived experience. But I wanted to for it to happen. I'm like, of course, I, I want to be able to like just magically have like a million dollars just appear for me. Like, I want to do this too. And so I was like, I'm going to figure this shit out. And so that was like a really a big process of reclamation for me. And now I love to teach about manifestation and its roots in BIPOC cultures and about how manifestation isn't about money. It's about deep inner healing. And it's a really beautiful tool that allows us to heal towards the things that we desire. And so I 100% get that 100% get that feeling of like, ooh, this is weird and icky, but not because of the actual practice or the modality, but because of who co-opted it and who the face, quote unquote, face of it is, you know, I understand mm -hmm. that deeply. Do you find that a lot of the population of your current and past clientele were people who are like, this is their first time really stepping, like dipping their toe into and investing in spirituality, sort of in quotes? Or do you find that it's been people like a little bit further along the journey where they're like, I know I want to use this and I've been practicing how to use it, but I just have only seen teachers that I can't relate to. I think there's kind of a range, but what I will mm -hmm. say the commonality is, is that a lot of people come to me because they want to really work on their self-growth or their self-healing or their self-development. But what they're hearing out there, what they're seeing out there just doesn't click with them. Like they can see the benefit of it. They can understand why these concepts are powerful, but the way it's being taught and who is teaching it just doesn't resonate with them. And they're like, they think, okay, well, maybe I can't find my folks. And 
I find a lot of people come to me and they're like, oh my gosh, yes, this makes sense. This is like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. So that to me is really important is making these ideas and concepts really, really accessible. And when I say accessible, I'm not just talking about where we come from and who we are, but accessible and how we teach them and the stories we use and resources and the guides and the history that we call upon. That also has a lot to do with accessibility. And unfortunately with wellness, the accessibility is like, there's an issue on all levels, right? Mm. But especially in how it's being taught and what are the materials, how are the ways we're teaching it? Yeah. One of the things that I really loved about your work was the allowance is kind of how I look at it, where you leave space for there to be doubts. <laughs> you know, you like, you leave space for like, oh, no, 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 you're still a human. You can like spiritually glow up and you're still a person who has triggers. We might get it to like, you know, your triggers are less strong or you are triggered by them less often, but you're still a whole ass person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I found that very much missing. I think in the popular zeitgeist of wellness, it like, it feels very much still a different form of amputation, but they're just making it sexier. <laughs> yeah. For me, when like everything I creates like a love letter to my former self of like, what did I wish I had like six, seven years ago when I started on my wellness journey? Like, what are the things I wish I knew? How do I wish it was taught? And so for me, story is such an important part. And I think there's also this, sometimes people do it. Not everyone does this, but as I'm just a teacher, I'm a facilitator, I'm a guide. I'm not an expert. I'm not a master. So when people come to my spaces, I never make it seem like as if I'm the master here. In my spaces, we're all teachers. We're all guiding one another, right? I create the space. But I share a lot through story to show that like, hey, listen, like I teach this shit, but like, listen to what I did last week. And of course, it's not happening all the time because we also have an issue of a lot of quote unquote healers and teachers who aren't really doing the work mm -hmm. and who are actually quite harmful and it can be very harmful. So that's another issue unto itself. But, you know, I heard this phrase, which is like, teach from your scars, not from your wounds. And mm -hmm. like, I have a lot of scars and I'm more than happy to show them to you. So you can see that I am human, that I have made these mistakes and that like, it still happens. But I do think that's a really important part of, of teaching is to not. And again, like, as you said, we're never healed. We're always healing. It's a process of becoming. Mm -hmm. So that's also something we have to always be mindful of as well. Mm -hmm. I really like that saying, teach from your scars, not your wounds. How long, and I'm sure that it's a case by case basis, but you mentioned that you're writing a love letter more or less to you six, seven years ago. How long do you typically like to let something integrate before you're comfortable coaching or guiding on it? I think for me, again, it's case by case, but your body knows, you know, you know, you can teach from there because you're not having a really deep visceral reaction to it. And you can talk about it as if it's like a painting not as if like you're in the painting or it's a movie, you're not in the movie, right? So I think that's when you know this is something that's like you can call upon and teach and talk about. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You wrote an email some time ago that I really enjoyed. You had a main point and I remember reading through it and going, no, Sharon, that's not the point that I got from this. <laughs> but I believe it was... 
I naturally, in writing my notes, didn't give myself full sentences or full context, just little scripts. But (laughs) I think you're talking about when you don't know what to do. It's not that you actually are unsure of what you want. It's that there's something kind of blocking your access to your wisdom. And I really loved that little piece of there's not uncertainty (laughs) like in that sense of it's not about like you not knowing what you want there's something in your way and I would love to just hear a bit more about kind of one how you came to understand like how that came to crystallize because I knew that but I didn't have words around it (laughs) and then secondly just ways that you help yourself unblock that wisdom. Yeah. So as a coach, and I was very lucky. So the coaching I learned is called transformational coaching. And I remember on the first day of our program, we were taught that like, as a coach, we don't have the answers. The person you're working with has the answer. They already Mm -hmm. know. And our job is to offer them the tools and the questions and the space to uncover what that answer is for themselves. And I knew that to be true in my own life is that I always knew whether it was something like as silly as what I wanted to order for dinner Mm -hmm. to who I wanted to marry, right? Like I always knew deep down what I wanted, but it's like all the layers of the shoulds and the supposed tos and the trauma and the fear that get in the way from really claiming what we want. Because more often than not, those of us, who I have a feeling it's your community, those of us who are here in community, the things we want go against what people say we should want. They go against what sometimes we think we should want. They go against what we've worked for. They go against society. And so there's a real fear in like actually naming and claiming what you want, right? And so that's just something I kept witnessing time and again with clients where it was like, they'd be like, well, I don't know. And like, as a coach, I was like, I know you know, and we'll get to that answer But that takes time, right? Because sometimes, like for instance, I actually knew I wanted to stop singing before I started my job at the Met. I knew I wanted to stop. However, at the time, first, it felt very scary to do that because my identity was based on singing. I literally my entire life since I was six, okay, was singing. So like, what the hell? I don't have any other skills or any other things. But also, I was making that decision from a place of absolute anger and fear. And when I started to do the internal work, I was able to do the identity work of who I was and what I wanted, but also I was able to see so clearly why I didn't want to be a singer anymore out of a place of love. Like I could love singing, but actually this isn't for me. And so that also was really helpful too. Like a lot of my clients come to me and they're like, I want to quit my job. And I'm like, wait a second, hold on let's work through this. And sometimes end up quitting their job by the end of our time together. And sometimes they'll stay at their job, but they're able to navigate in a much more healthy way. Right. Mm -hmm. So we know what we want. We know what we want and we'll uncover that truth when we're ready. And as a coach, as a guide, my job is to really offer you that space and the tools to uncover it. And so whenever I'm indecisive, I always know what I want. Like when I'm indecisive, I'm like, girl, you know what you want. You're just not ready to say it yet. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you're just not ready to say it yet. And very recently, I won't say the situation, but I was being very indecisive about something. And I stopped. I was like, okay, you're being indecisive. I know you know what you want. I didn't know at the time what it was exactly, but like, you know what you want. What is stopping you from getting to that wisdom? 
And when I started to like, when I paused and I really like connected with myself, I realized what was stopping me was like a very old wound, a very old wound of a label that was placed on me when I was younger. And that label was making me think that if I chose this thing, I would be labeled again. So I realized I was like, I'm indecisive because I'm worried about this label. I'm worried about like this past pain and this trauma. And so when I was able to offer myself like some love and self-compassion to that part, like anyone who works with me, it's like everything we do is like self-compassion. And, but like, it is the thing. It's like the tenderness and the love is actually what creates momentum. And once I was able to do that, I made the fucking decision and I'm so happy with my decision, even though it wasn't the easiest decision. It wasn't the decision that everyone liked, but it was the decision for me. So anytime you're indecisive, you do know, you have to understand what is making me indecisive right now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Thank you. And what have you gotten from working with your clients and just doing this work with slash for other people? I love the work I get to do and I love the humans I get to do it with. I honestly feel like it's a true testament to just the amount of years I've poured into this in the heart that I now get to work with people that really are a reflection of my heart and soul. And I love to be in community with them. I get so much out of it. Like there is this sense of humility and joy, honor and gratitude to be able to witness someone's journey unfolding, to be able to hear the intimate parts of themselves. I get to see now the fruits of my client's dreams, like coming to life. Like people who three years ago were like, I want to be doing this job. And now they're like DMing me and they're like, holy shit, Shirin, I just got promoted at that job. Or someone who was like, I want to have this partnership and I want to live in this remote part of wherever. And then all of a sudden, like I see on Instagram, they're married in this remote part of whatever. I mean, I know that's not me, but to be part of that journey is like the most humbling, beautiful awe-inspiring thing. Like, honestly, I get chills when I think about it. And the fact that people trust me, oof, that like always gets me. They trust me and they trust what we're going to do. They trust the work because also with this work of coaching and healing, it's not like you're going to a doctor and it's like, okay, I want you to go to PT once a week, take this like medication, put this ointment on and you're going to be good. You know, you're coming to me and you're like, okay, I don't know what the heck you're going to do with me, but I trust you. And that is also the very humbling thing and something I don't take for granted at all. So it's just a joy. It's a joy. In one word, it's a joy, but it's all the things. Mm, that's so lovely. Oh. <laughs> People say that entrepreneurship is the biggest catalyst. And how do they say it? I don't know. There was a saying some time ago where people just kept saying, if you really want to get into self-development, start a business, basically, you know, because entrepreneurship is this huge journey of fighting, <laughs> fighting these like past things, coming to realize these stories you have. There's just so much personal development that is catalyzed from trying to be an entrepreneur. And I'm wondering, as you've been moving through this journey in the past five or so years, as well as your inner journey of rearranging your community 
how have you found community to support you in your entrepreneurship? Not necessarily biz besties, which I'm still wondering how people have those, but that's another (laughs) different conversation. But just how have you found people who can support you through this really just silly, goofy situation (laughs) that is entrepreneurship? Yeah. I once heard someone call entrepreneurship, this is shadow work, having a business is just shadow work. That's like, and it's literally all it is. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. you literally have to face all of your fears, all of them. Like, oh, it's just and out loud one, in front of people, yeah, <laughs> out loud in front of people. It's a lot. It's a lot. And honestly, like I said, when we talked about community, I literally, when I started to learn about manifestation, I said to the universe, I'm like, I just want a community that can really uplift me and support me and meet me where I'm at and push me beyond. And slowly and surely, I started to gain these beautiful friendships that are exactly like that. Some of them are in business, some of them are not, but all of these people, they very much love what they do. They're very committed to what they do and what they do is quite difficult. And so we kind of, it's almost like, you know, when you go to your friend to like some party and one of you gets super drunk And so all of you have to sober up so you can like take care of that friend. Well, we cycle through that, not by getting drunk, but like just crying about our businesses, right? Every two to three months, it's like me or then it's the other person. And and we all just have to be like that support system that we need for each other. Because that's what the journey is like. There's just lots of ups and downs on it. And so, yes, having a community Again, it could be a biz bestie, whether that community is also just an online community of people to have a space in which you can vent or in which people can offer you advice or support is super helpful. But I love that you bring this up because entrepreneurship is not just glamour and glitz and gold. It can be tough. It is tough. But if you can have, again, the how, I just, I think about this all the time. Like, girl, you wanted this business because you wanted to be able to take time off. You wanted to be able to travel with your boo. You wanted to be able to do X, Y, and Z. So like, why are you at home right now when it's sunny outside? Why aren't you going for a walk? Dude, I have to remind myself sometimes because like, you know, there's memes on TikTok and they're real where it's like, you decide to go into business for yourself and you're working like twice as hard. You're working on the weekends. I mean, that can definitely happen. Mm -hmm. So having a community around you, and I'm very, very lucky I do. I have these friends that I really had to call them in though. Like I really had to do some real, like cutting the fat. That's a terrible, terrible term to use. But like, I just had to get very, and I didn't cut any friendships out of my life, but I also realized the purpose of certain relationships. Yeah. Right. And that's really important too. Like you don't have to cut people out, but you can also understand, okay, this is not the person I go to when I'm feeling really insecure. This is not the person I go to when I need a little bit more support around something scary I'm doing. So I've become very intentional with my friendships. And also I'm very lucky that I have a partner who's very supportive from like, whether, you know, making dinner or just listening to me vent. So I don't know if that answered your question, Athena, but those are, yes, yes. Having a community is amazing and having your own business is a trip. Yay. Great answer. (laughs) locked and loaded (laughs) cacao now it's time for the seedling round where short questions lead to tasty answers Sharon, how do you measure time oh my gosh I measure time in belly laughs I measure time in really delicious meals I measure time in stupid adventures I measure time in just lots of love experiences and adventure yes 
Great. What is your favorite form of rest? Favorite form of rest is a nap. Mm -hmm. In the middle of the day nap, preferably on the couch with like just like a cat like with the sun on you yeah. a little bit yeah, yeah, the yeah. Best. yeah the yeah best. you want the window angle like right under your chin yes. I know exactly yes. what you mean <laughs> yes yes do you ever get that sleep paralysis or like no oh okay <laughs> do you get that what happens sometimes when I sleep in the middle of the day and it's only in the middle of the day I will like wake up from the nap. I can't really move my body too much. I don't see a scary man, thank God, because thank I God. couldn't deal with it. <laughs> no, no. But what does happen is when I realize that I'm in this kind of like stuck mode, I'll just say, all right, bring them on. And then the craziest dreams, I'll just have like five or six crazy dreams. There was one time when I was in the middle of the ocean, but it had like... <laughs> This is so silly. <laughs> I was in the middle of the ocean, but it had like parted kind of similar to like Moses, Moses style. Heck yeah. And then there was this huge ship just like swinging and coming towards me. And I was like, okay, guys, I'd like to get out of my dream now. Oh my God. And it just kept getting closer and closer. And then it whacked me into another dream. <laughs> this is amazing. Oh my God. No, I do not get this. And Athena, I'm quite envious. This sounds amazing. <laughs> Vivid dreams and sleep paralysis with no scary people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wow. Pretty good. Wow. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> in what format is your magic most potent? In story. Mm. Can I give just a touch more? <laughs> I think I'm a really good storyteller. And mm -hmm. I think stories, again, when we think of decolonizing how we teach and how we do this work story is like at the root of everything we learn through story we connect through story we laugh we cry it's just like story is everything and I think my magic is yeah it's in my stories yeah for sure cool cacao that ends the seedling round Sharon there's like eight different ways I've said your name in this episode alone <laughs> I love them all. Well, so here's the thing with my name. I don't have a lot of attachment to the pronunciation because the actual pronunciation in Farsi is Shirin. Mm. And it's tough. It's like, it's a mouthful for people to say. So growing up when I was in Canada, everyone said Shirin, but I also like Shirin. Some people say Shirin. So honestly, I don't have much of an attachment and it's not like I get offended at all. So actually I'm here for every single pronunciation, all of it. Great, 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 great. Thank you so much for being here. I love to end on one thing. What is the question of the week? Oh, the question of the week is, how can I make this easier? Mm. Just settle right on into that one, listener. <laughs> okay, where can people connect with you? So you can find me on Instagram at Wholehearted Coaching. And I also have a podcast called Wholehearted Coaching, the podcast, and my website is wholehearted-coaching.com. And if you want to find out about my programs, there's a link there with offerings and you can check that out. Mm -hmm. Wow. We love coherence <laughs> across platforms. Yes. Thank you so much for being here, listener. I very much appreciate your ears. You can support the show by popping over there, rating it five stars. Guess what, Android users? Spotify now has a rating system, so we don't have to log on to our friend's iOS device to get to iTunes to rate anymore. We can do this. 
So give us five stars and I will see you in the next season. Thank you for being here. Shireen. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a thrill and such a joy, my love. Yes. And I really appreciate also you, my special, special listener for all these delicious episodes sticking with us. All right. I'll see you later. Much love, Athena.